Welcome. You're listening to Vibes Radio live from Amsterdam. With today's guest, JD. Let's get started. Welcome back to Vibes Radio. My name is Rafi. Next to me is my co-host Milan. We're here today with none other than JD, also known of course as Robin Albers. One of, in my opinion, the greatest legendary house producers of all time. Known for a track that has been in the top 2000 list on number one, the top 2000 house list for many, many years consecutively. Thank you so much for being here. How are you? Hi, Rafi. Hi, Milan. I'm very happy in this setting. It's, we're sitting outside in a nice environment with nice music on the background. And I'm very honored that you asked me for your special guest. We're honored that you said yes and that you're here with us today. We're going to talk about a lot of things. We're going to talk about your career, which has been fantastic. We're going to talk about your future. We're going to talk about everything in between the day you started and the day you're going to maybe stop one day. Who knows? How did your lo love for house music start? It started way back, end of the 80s, beginning of the 90s. I, at that time, I was... Uh, I think a very famous uh, uh, DJ on the radio because at that time we didn't have internet so our radio station gained about two million listeners and I did a hosted show that was called Top Up Radio and at that time I played a lot of uh, black music, soul, funk, disco, uh, even uh, R&B and uh, the guys, some friends of me told me, hey Robin now it's time to make a change. You are gonna play house music. And I said, no, the, 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 that bullshit house, that acid house, that silky Steve Early sound, I don't like that. It's not tough enough. So they said, okay, join us next week. We go to Belgium, to the Barocca. It's a famous, legendary nightclub. And there they play true house music, which people don't know in Holland. So we did it, we went away. We went to the Barocca and it was very funny because for me it was just opening a door to new people and you can imagine that you can, you can compare that with people who are looking for a new tribe in the wilderness in Brazil and they say people and the people see them, they didn't see anyone until that time and that's what I felt, I felt a new, a new tribe which I felt comfortable with, and the music was so energizing and so hypnotizing. And I saw white girls in this time, it's a, bit, it's a little bit uh, tricky, but I saw white girls dancing as black girls, and they were moving like uh, having sex, I think. And at that time I was, of <laughs> course, a little bit high of the one-half pill I took before. They said that was a that was necessary because then I should feel the music better and better. And it was true for me, it was, it was a trip. I opened doors and at that time I thought this is the music for a long time. This is the musical revolution where a lot of people are waiting for because we are the 70s with the soul, with the 80s disco and the 90s were boring. So in 2009, in the beginning of the 90s there was the house music coming and I'm, I'm one of the first generation house DJs so uh, I I saw the birth of house, and that is very special. That's very special indeed. It's interesting you're saying, talking about that you found the love for house music in another country and not by yourself, right? Yeah, Bel I think Belgium was number one, but you know how the Dutch people are. They are very uh, uh, commercial and they take everything what they like. And then uh, the story was that it was invented in Holland, but it's not true. House music started in Belgium, and Belgium had a lot of nightclubs because in Holland uh, they didn't allow us to have uh, after parties. So a lot of uh, guys and girls, they went to Belgium when they had a party in Holland, and then they went to the after party. They went to the Boccaccio, or they went to Balmoral, or uh, a lot of other, other clubs in Belgium who were very famous at the time. 
And uh, when did you start producing? When did you? You obviously you were already part of the part of the scene. You were listening to the music, loving the music. But when did you see? Hey, there's a place for me in this scene. When did you start doing that? Yeah. When I discovered this this music, I I told my boss I want to do a program, and coincidentally there was a time free a time slot, so I uh, I filled it with house music, and uh, I was the first DJ that played that kind of music on the national radio. Can you imagine? A lot of people were listening, even in jail, and they risk uh, solitary uh, lockdown if they listen to my program because the jail was like a coffee shop. Everybody was was smuggling uh, uh, wheat and hash into the into the jail, and everybody was putting their uh, boombox on Radio 3 when I was hosting my show. And the jail was like a coffee shop, smelling like wheat, and uh, the guards didn't know what was happening. So at the time, it was very um, emotional to, to to host this program. A lot of people were coming to my show. I think about between 1,800 people all uh, dressed up you know like party people and everybody was smoking weed in my studio even i i think i was the first stone dj that fell asleep during a record in my show and they ticked me on my shoulder and they said hey hey jd robin <laughs> the record is uh, is done i heard the needle against the record I said, and i opened my mic and i said uh, this this is one was so beautiful we fell asleep with this song <laughs> So it's it's and at that time I was uh, not producing yet and I thought I was buying a lot of records and I thought maybe I can I can do it myself. So I called a good friend DJ Sven from um, the Holiday Rap and I asked him to teach me some lessons on the Cubase. And then I took some piano lessons for one year and within the year I made this song on a hot August night in the summer. And by this song you mean Plastic Dreams? Yeah, Plastic Dreams was was number one in the U.S. in the Billboard. For me, that was very special because not a lot of songs of Holland came in uh, to the top ten and to the to the number one. And I was number one in Italy. A lot of countries I was number one. So I, at, from that time off, I toured around all the world and was the first DJ in Moscow. I saw a lot of people. I met a lot of very nice people and. And, and I, I have to thank this this magical moment that I made Plastic Dreams because it made me the man I am now. Plastic Dreams is not just a track, it's not just a normal track, it's one of the house classics of all time. And that's a word, a word, it's a word you hear often, it's a classic, but this is a true classic. It's a really what a classic is, it's the definition of a classic. Tell us about the start of Plastic Dreams. How did this track become the biggest house classic of all time? I think the most important thing is that if there's a, a genre going on into house music, because now we have several genres, we have deep house, de melodic tech, melodic house, uh, we have a, lo a lot of names for several kinds of music in, in, in house music. And this song was different than all the songs that came out. And maybe the difference between the, the, the whole bunch of house music was uh, critical to be a number, a number one hit. It was different than other songs. It didn't have a break because I want that they play my record the full 10 minutes. It's a story and the story has to be told. So if they cut my mix after three uh, minutes, uh, it's a shame because you, you, you forget half of the book. So if you read a book, you can read a book fully from the beginning to the end, or you can cut the book in half and you think, okay, I, I don't care about the other half. So you, you say, you see like a, a musical track as the same as any other piece of art. It has to be kind of swallowed in a whole way, not in a half way. Yeah, if you listen to my mixes on Mixcloud or Soundcloud or on the radio, because I host a show now in, on Ibiza, um, I'm one of the few mixers, here's a guy, he knows me, I'm one of the few mixers that almost completely uh, play a song. Except it's very boring and repeatable, then I don't play the song very uh, in total, but when it's uh, new sounds coming and different patterns, I play the whole song because for me it's a painting and I want to see the complete paint, yeah, the painting. I think the name uh, Plastic Dream is really nice, but you can interpret it in so many ways. Like, how shall, can we Shall I explain? It? Yeah, do it. Yeah, uh, I had a girlfriend at the time. She was stewardess at Martinair, and uh, 
There was a special guest on board, it was called uh, Donald Trump. And he was one of the few guys who had a special uh, credit card. And that credit card had only four people of the world. And with that credit card you can buy an island or a country or a big factory from where 40,000 or 50,000 people live. That credit card is un unlimited, unlimited. Over one million, I think. And he had that credit card, so he ordered caviar uh, and my girlfriend took the credit card on her plate and she showed it to the, the purser and the pilot. And the pilot, he made a little uh, tick on the steer, so the, the, the airplane went a little bit to the left or right, because she said, is that, uh, that special card? Yeah. So everybody was shouting about this card and I couldn't believe that this piece of plastic had so much influence on a lot of people. And it's only five by ten centimeters. And I thought, for me, that is a plastic dream. Yeah. And maybe, maybe I can uh, earn s such a credit card with my record. Of course, I didn't earn it because I made a lot of mistakes. Doesn't matter. But that was plastic dreams. So it's it's for me, it's a credit card that is unaffordable. That's why it's a dream. Interesting story. I didn't know that. That's interesting to hear. Um, you've said before that it was a challenge to sign this song to a label back in the day, even though now if you hear it and what the success it has become, it's unimaginable that no one would sign it. But uh, how did you manage to sign it in the end? And how did you find a label for it? And was it the right fit with the label? Did you have an instant connection? I didn't find a label, the label found me. Uh, in Holland, they didn't uh, understand my track. I had a lot of complaints about it's too long, it's too monotone, there's no break in it, the intro is too long, and I, I, I was following my I was following my heart and I said, okay, if you don't like the the longness of the track, then it's nothing for you. And if they said to me there should be a break in it, I said then it's not for you. If they said the intro is too long, I said then it's not for you. So in Holland I was fed up with these guys who want to transform my track into their track. It's my track. So what the fuck are they saying to me that I should put a break in it? So I didn't put a break in it. And at that time, a, a friend of mine called me, he said, I have three minutes left on a CD, and uh, do you have a song? I have a song of 10 minutes, but uh, okay, we, we edit it until three minutes. Okay, I don't have the time for that. So I sent a song to this uh, company, and uh, he released as the last track on the CD and then it was played in Belgium by a famous DJ, Frank de Wolf. And there was a guy sitting next, next to him that was Renat. He was the famous owner of RNS Records. RNS means Renat and Sabine. Sabine is his wife. And at the moment he wanted to step out of the car, the sound boop, 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 went on. And Ronald went back in the car, he said, what is this? And Frank said, I don't know. It's JD, Plastic Jesus. Who is this guy? I don't know. Where is he from? I don't know. So they searched for four weeks who was JD and he came to me. And at that time it went like a rock. I signed a contract with RNS and one day my, uh, my office was filled with paper from the fax. At the time we had fax, we didn't have internet, so it was a long roll, about seven or eight meters. I thought it was broken, but it was all uh, playing there, playing in Italy, performing in Russia, performing in Greece, performing in, uh, in the US. So I went to New York, I went to Los Angeles, I went to Miami, I went to Moscow, to Greece, everywhere, Finland. So I was like kind of a traveling, uh, traveling artist. So. The reason it became so successful is because you stuck to your, yeah, you followed your heart, as you said. You kind yeah. of, you've stuck to your guts and you believed in the track. Yes. How 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 important is it as for a producer, for a DJ, to follow your heart and yeah, not give a fuck about what anyone else says, as you as you said. I think times changed, and uh, I think you have to be sensible for input, but. You have to follow your heart, but at these times you have to be very good if you want to compete with uh, the, the big producers like uh, Loco Dice or uh, Rodriguez or any, anyone else, Solomon. Or, uh, because they are, the sounds are good, 
the productions are good, the mastering is good nowadays. So if you have a song and it sounded like a beginner song, <coughs> you can forget it. It has to be good, it has to be fat, it has to be uh, a good uh, build up. It has to be a good break, maybe two or something, I don't know. But you have to be very good these days if you want to uh, score a hit. Because there are a lot of music now. The, the, the it's easier for a lot of guys to become a producer because I come of the time that we have to pay a lot of a lot of instruments and a lot of MIDI gear. So my wall was filled with a lot of sound uh, gear and, and mastering gear. And nowadays if you have a good computer and you know a little bit the way on, on, on sample gaining, you can become, a, within one half year you can become a good producer. At that time it was very, very expensive and you have to get some sense for technical uh, engineering because you have to connect it all by yourself. I think that you mentioned Solomon in yeah. your, what you just said. Uh, I've actually seen Solomon play your track three times live and that's just me in person live. As a producer, what feeling does it give you when Carl Cox, Todd Terry, Solomon, among other massive names very respected names. What feeling does it give you when they play your track on a regular basis? It's always an honor that calls or Solomon or um, Joseph Capriati or Eric Morillo play my track. And for me, it's even better if it's recorded on video, because because for me it's promotion and promotion, gaining promotion is gaining gigs, gaining uh, events. So it's it's very useful. And it helps me uh, creating more, more gigs. And if they play, I think uh, they know their history of house. And if you're a young DJ and you don't know the record, you don't know the track, I don't blame you because it's about 22 years ago now. So it's actually it's an old track, but at that time it was so fat. And I remember the mastering from Whistler. They told me I have to. Uh, uh, lower the gain from the kick because it was too fat and I said to uh, Mr. Ronald Brent I said I come to you and we do the mastering ourselves and I didn't want to lower the low in the kick because I knew there were new sound systems coming at the time we didn't have subwoofers it was full range uh, speakers so the mid high and the low were in one speaker so I blew up with Plastic Dreams a lot of systems <laughs> Because it was how many? Fat. How many? Be honest. The the nicest was uh, nicest was one is in Gamert and it was a club and they they, they bought a new system and the the amplifiers were just put on each other. I didn't knew it because it was in the in the in the beer in the beer compartment and I was playing and suddenly I heard a lot of rumble and boom and the music went out and because of the the subs all the amplifiers were falling down. So that was the end of the evening. So uh, the, the club owners were a bit scared of you, maybe? <laughs> yeah, they were scared for me for the sound, because I blew up the system, and they were scared of me because I, I put uh, the, the whole club into the smoke. <laughs> <laughs> so you already told us what impact Plastic Dreams have on your life. It made yeah. you the man you are today. But what impact did it have in your creative process, in your process in the studio? Um, that's a good question because um, a lot of people ask me, uh, can you reproduce again such a track? I think I made tracks that are even better than Plastic Dreams, but I told you that the days are, are, are have changed a lot. So there's a lot of new music coming, there are a lot of good uh, producers, young. Uh, they don't care about our patterns from that days, they, they create new patterns, they create new sounds. They're mostly sound designers and they put a lot of time in creating a sound. I heard one guy did two days about one hi-hat. I do two seconds about one hi-hat. So uh, the time that I spent uh, learning MIDI, the guys are spending now with creating a sound, creating a bass pattern, bass pattern or something. So the times has changed, times changed and uh, I don't, I can't compete with the with, uh, the genius of the young generation now, they are so good. And don't forget, we had a time that there was classical music with Mozart, Beethoven, but don't forget in this time with dance music and house music, there are also guys with the same quality like Beethoven and Mozart. 
Yeah, there are really some geniuses around. Like. Yes, really. Was was the success of Plastic Dreams? Uh, a, obviously, it was a good thing for your career. Yeah. But was it a, a difficult thing as well? I can imagine if you create such a hit, then it's hard to, as you said, reproduce that type of quality, that type of success. Was it difficult to to deal with that? No, I don't think so, because if you are open-minded and, and you're starting some fresh music, after that I made another one, number one hit, it was called Fiesta from the Sun Club. And after that I made another, another number one hit, it, uh, the Underduck, Underduck Project, a summer jam. And I did, uh, that's very cheesy, I did Jordi Menal, Casey Canal. That was also number one. And I think I make a number one again. I don't know when, but it can happen. You just have to find the right time, the right moment, and the right creation. You're still producing music, right? Yeah, I have my own studio. I have my own record label. I have my own bookings agency. So we sign records from hip-hop until mainstream. And between that, we have Deep House, Melodic Tech, and Techno. And your own productions? You're like sticking to your own sound, or you're going with the time? How do you do it? You have to go with the time. Because if you if you have to don't don't go with the time you stick in old patterns and you don't know what the new sounds are because sounds are changing very fast these days. In three months it can be ARP, and in three months it can be a big kick. There was a time where the kick was full and top, and now the kick is very soft. There was a time there were a lot of ARPs. Still ARPs are used. I'm getting a little bit fed up of all these ARP tracks. So I think in a month of two, three, four, the the ARP is gone. Then we have nice synth lines and melody lines with strings and so on. Because we had enough art now, that's, that's the time. And if you don't know the sounds that are changing and you don't know and you're not searching and sourcing on Beatport or on all porters who are providing this new music, then you get stuck in your own pat old patterns and then you lose, you lose the connection with the audience because the audience is very clever. They know everything. Even if you, if you go out and the audience hear a song they like, they put right on the phone and the fucking Shazam is on. For me, it should be better in a club that cellular phones should be forbidden. I hate it when I'm playing and it's nice and dark and the people, even they are so rude, they put on the flashlight and then they're filming you not for one minute but for six minutes. And I hate that. Just leave your phone home because enjoy the moment at that time yeah it, it's interesting you say that because actually at our events we print posters put them on the walls which says no phones on the dance floor so, so great we, we believe in that in that philosophy so see there's the connection between the youth and maybe between me that's even nice. now with social media people sometimes are living the whole festival to their phone it's crazy like it's crazy the whole time yeah Sometimes I see a picture from me on Facebook. They put, they, they, they took from me, and I'm looking like a, a melted ET, you know. Like, <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and then I'm thinking, what the fuck is wrong with you? If you see that you take a picture of me, and you see I'm looking like uh, uh, ridden by a car or something like that. Don't put that photo on the internet. Put, leave it for yourself. It's a responsibility for someone who takes the picture that hey, they say, okay, if I post this photo, uh, Robin likes it. But if I'm standing like a monkey or something like that, don't put it on. <laughs> Sometimes I even write the, the, the one who, wrote, who put the photo on, on Facebook, I said, can you delete that photo, please? Yeah. I'm looking like shit. Sometimes I smoke something or sometimes I drink something. I don't want to be, because I have my family, my daughter. I don't want them to think that I'm kind of junk, you know. Yeah. It's my time. So don't put it on the internet. Yeah. But what's your relation with social media in general? Because DJs nowadays use it a lot for their promotion, to show their new records or the new parties. But you miss it at times. So. Yeah, I like a midweight. I have my Facebook. I don't do a lot with, with, uh, with Instagram. I don't do a lot, a lot with Twitter. I have my own Facebook and uh, for me my private page is more uh, visited than my, my artist page. For me I don't care, I have an artist page and I have a private page and I put them together. So it's a tool but it's not the most important. Yeah that's a good point that it's a tool but where you produce your music is also a tool and sometimes yeah, yeah, artists yeah. forget that that's the most important yeah. tool, right? Yeah, you should be regularly uh, having releases on Beatport 
and put it on your social. So if I have a new track on my label or I sign it on another label, my new album is signed now by Bonsai Deep and it's released, I think, in two or three months. So you have to be on spot. You have to be in the spotlights still. So you can't sit back and think, okay, they call me for uh, the gigs. No, your performance has to be good. Your personality has to be good and your promotion has to be good. So all the three P's is very important to gain, gain gigs. So if you're arrogant or you're not uh, relaxed, they don't book you. If you are too expensive in Holland, especially in Holland, if you're expensive, they don't book you. And it's always in Holland, you know, we've, we, we are inventors in uh, low money. So the DJs in Holland, in spite they are good, they are low paid. If you go to Belgium or to England, they are well paid. And I don't understand this, but maybe it's a trick. <laughs> it's a Dutch stereotype, right? Yeah, we don't, we don't, I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't like to uh, pay a lot for things. No, no. <laughs> really fuckers. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned before the importance of the connection with the crowd and that maybe in the modern time that has been fading a little bit. I wonder how was the connection in your early days of DJing with the crowd? Is it different than the connection you have with the crowd today? And how do you as a DJ create that connection? Um, in the beginning I did a lot of drive-in shows and I was playing, paying and gone. And with this kind of music, it's so intense, so emotional. So the the connection between your fans or your friends is much uh, closer than at that time. Especially when when I play um, my melodic tech, that's very emotional with a lot of vocals, and I try to tell a story. So and if, and if people they understand it, so I have a fixed fixed uh, number of I, I call them friends, not fans will follow me when I play <clears throat> and I'm open-minded so I, I, I talk with them I go on the photo with them I don't feel more than them and uh, they are my friends and because they are coming I'm booked so if I play on Thuishaaf or somewhere else on big events I know a lot of my DJ friends have fans also friends so all these DJs together we gather a lot of people so if I'm playing at Thuishaaf with uh, the first division of football, of the, the Premier League, and a lot of people are coming because they want to see their DJ. And so, some people are coming for me, but some people are coming for me, for René, or some people are coming for Lucien, or for Jean, or for uh, whatever, Donald Molendijk, you know, because the first generation of house DJs from Holland are still very popular yeah. and very uh, successful these days. And I can't explain that, maybe because it started 22 years ago and maybe the people are now a little bit older and maybe they are divorced or the children are out of house and they want to have the feeling again from that 22 years ago they're now maybe 40 or 50 and they still want to party so on that uh, special events from Thuishaven and uh, Promised Land and Wooverland a lot of people are from 40, 50, 60, even 70, 80 but even ook 20 from 20 years old they are coming so it's a big commune and they love each other very much. And we love them and they love us. It's, it's also a bit no nostalgia, right? People want to feel the way it felt, as you mentioned, yeah. maybe 20 years ago. But it's also interesting to see the young crowd really getting into what the older generation has been doing. But maybe that's, it's a natural thing maybe. It's, it's time for the next generation, of course. But the next generation is only happening because of the previous one. It's true. I had a lot. I had a very. It's, it's very nice that you do mentioned it because I was on uh, Tomorrowland and Todd Terry was playing a house classic set, and there were a lot of young people in the in the, in the room. It was a tent, and I was look. I was walking to two girls because they know Burning and they know all the old songs. And I said to them, I asked them, how how do you know these songs? How can you sing along with these tracks? because you're maybe 20 or 21. No, I'm 19. But how do you know these tracks? Yeah, from YouTube. We love this music. So even the young generation loved the, the house music from the beginning. Because at that time it was more recognizable. There were more songs, more patterns. Nowadays, if you play a melodic text set, a lot of songs 
you can mix them perfectly into each other, but it doesn't have uh, some recon, recon, recognizable, you know. And at that time, in the beginning of the 80s, there were a lot of songs that had personality. They were different, like Plastic Dreams. As soon as you hear the first gong or first organ, you know, hey, Plastic Dreams play. A good record for me is it has to be well produced and all the all the tones has to be in balance and nothing has to be loud it has to have character and for me it has to has to has to bring something to the crowd and to me for me it has to be a wow moment and and that's the problem with a lot of DJs these days if they play a one hour set or two hour set they can play five wow records for me I want to play wow the full two hours that they can't escape there's no escape if I play there's no escape of course they escape because they have to have smoke and you have to drink and it's hot 
But for me, for me, the DJ is at his best if he can uh, thrill me for the full set. And if you play now at a party, do you like mostly play old records or also new records? No, new records. New that's records. my sound. I, I like the old records and I respect them because that's that's the man I am now. But even on Thuishaven, when the the owner tell everybody, every DJ, to play house classics until uh, 2005, they tell every DJ that. And the one who's not doing that is sitting here because I play old and new and there, if there's a lot of young people I play totally new I don't care if they say to everybody you have to play old old music I play what I want I don't play what the owner wants <laughs> yeah that's it a little bit because I was even fired on a Saturday night in I was playing in in, in Den Bosch in the Galaxy famous club and the, and the owner came to me and he said to me now Robin you have to play a carnival because the DJ uh, who's playing on Saturday is doing that also and you play the first time on a Saturday so at one o'clock you have to play carnival I said I don't play carnival and he said but I'm <laughs> the owner I said and I'm the DJ uh, and the owner can uh, quit your job I said, then quit me. So he fired me on a Saturday night with a full-packed uh, club. So even I put my needle off the racket. You know that song, put the needle on the racket. So it was totally still with a thousand people on the floor, dance floor. And I packed my bag and I went away. Mm. That's so, a good decision. Huh? Yeah. 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 It's time to do a change. So you don't have to be afraid to change. I said it to my daughter also. Don't be afraid to get fired on your job. Um, I'd rather have you to get 40 jobs in your life than two jobs in your life, because you're learning a lot of more. Yeah, you, you mentioned the importance of a, a wow moment in a track yeah. and in a set, and the way to connect with the crowd is very important. When you when you have this wow moment, what makes this wow moment I know it's like almost digging into your secrets digging into what makes a DJ good but what makes a, a wow moment when when do you know you found it it's a story and uh, um, a wow moment can even be very deep that you're in a kind of trance you know with no uh, breaks in a song a wow moment for a lot of DJs is a build-up <laughs> and people are so stupid in Holland or everywhere. They go with their hands in the air. And For me, that, that's not the wow moment. For me, the wow moment is that you enjoy the full set. Mm. Even with a, a low, uh, a, a, a moment of peace or rest in your, in your set. But it has to connect to each other. So it's difficult to explain. Was that a little fuck you to the EDM DJs? Um, <laughs> Just a little one. Yeah, EDM. I think it's it's <laughs> it's born by uh, the generation uh, who's very fast. My daughter is very fast with YouTube. She sits in the car. Uh, she doesn't play a song longer than 20 seconds or 30 seconds. I'm getting crazy of that. And she said, yes, Dad, it's the new generation. I said, yeah, but... This music kills me, it's so uh, autistic. And maybe EDM is is born by autistic people, I think so. <laughs> yeah, because it's it, it goes very fast. In, in in five seconds you go from no zero to two hundred miles an hour. So yeah. and then the break comes very fast and the patterns are man, it's it's like uh, it's crazy. It's, it's funny that you say that, that people now skip the whole song and go to the drop and just listen to the drop and then go to the next song. Yeah. What, what's the, what was it back in 1980s? How did they do it like that? In the 80s, yeah. I, when I played at, at my drive-in shows, we played the song almost fully. If you if you cut a song in half, the people were shouting. <laughs> they were angry. They, they, they threw glasses at your face or, or, or beer in your face. A that's, famous that's, DJ. That's, that's the opposite of what you want, I think. <laughs> 
Uh, Ronald Molendijk did this trick in his, his, his famous Nighttime when he played and he played a song that people loved very much like Burning or Moby, he did only and then he took it away, so the people were shouting, they think okay now now finally you're gonna mix Moby. So he did two songs or from, a, from a special song and then he took it away and I was dancing on that song and I was like motherfucker what are you doing? And then he took it away and he didn't play it. So he was like a teasing DJ. Mm. Maybe it was something from for him. I, I I never understand it. I have to ask him sometimes why he did it. How how did you play with the crowd? How did you make them like wait for something? Yeah, well, it was easy for them with with the drive-in shows from uh, from from the radio. I um, they did everything because I had some T-shirts or merchandise. So they did everything. If if I ask five guys on stage who uh, who would load the pants, they did it. They did it because of they they want to have a, have a, have a T-shirt. Um, I'm not the DJ that uh, lets the crowd shout or something. It's not for me. Uh, we have a, we had we had a, we had a one DJ that was called. Um, she she did every time she did a long break with razors and and then the people get loose. You know, every time every time boom. The next time every time a break. So I called it the break DJ. <coughs> And for her, that was that was for her was the answer that she was a good DJ, because as long as the people put their hands in the air, she had the feeling that she did a good job. For me, it's not necessary to put the hands in the air. For me, it's necessary that you follow my story. Um, you you you've mentioned that you play live for young crowds as well, yes. very often at different events. You mentioned uh, Thuishaven. What is the difference in approach, other than, of course, the track types, because you maybe choose newer tracks or versus older tracks, but what's the difference in approach when you see that the crowd is much younger than, yeah. Yeah, if the people are young, 20, 21, they, <clears throat> they know a lot. I play, uh, I play the new music. Playing vinyl against playing digital. What's your favorite and is there a difference in when you use vinyl or digital in the connection you have with the crowd? The crowd doesn't care. A lot of them. Maybe they care if they can see the DJ and the hands. A lot of DJs are standing up so they can't see what they do. They can even do a fake set. I like to stand close to the crowd and then they can see what I'm doing. And playing with vinyl is old. It's nice, but it's not necessary anymore. Um, because you don't have to carry the heavy bags. Even though the, the turntables they are wrong connected or they are connected with rumble or they don't have the floaters under it and it sounds boring when you put the bass in it, it gets rumble. You know? So if you go digital, you have more choices, a wider variety and the CD players are so, so clever now. As you can see the wave files, you can make your own cue points, you can uh, uh, listen to them before you do the, the, the show. I listen all my tracks before I play them on, on for the show because I want to hear in my studio if they're well produced and if the, the quality <laughs> is good. So every show I I prepare my show. And if you have to do it with final, you have to play all the records. So now you can do very fast, skip, skip, skip in the middle, and then bam, 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 bam. You can do it with final or so, but for me. It's nice if they want to do a party with final, I can do it, and they put it on the flyer, final only. And some people like it, but I know now from from my experience that in the beginning they like it, final. I did final shows in Rotterdam, and after that they didn't look anymore. They didn't look anymore. So I said, why should I bother to to make so much effort to play final if they don't look if I play with final? Interesting. Yeah. So, as you're telling us, you've had many special moments in your career, many things that meant a lot for you. But what was the ultimate highlight? I had a lot of highlights. Mm. Yeah, maybe highlight was in, uh, in, uh, in Moscow. Because it was very special. And <coughs> it was in the building for Mercedes. And they put a little big walls, two big walls from Bose. And in my club at the time, I was playing on bows, and we had four bows. It were this 909 bows with two uh, 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 holes in it, and they put left, I think, 80 bows speakers, and on the right side 80 bows. The whole building was trembling from the music. 
And for me, that was so huge that I thought, what the hell is going on here in Russia? And then I wanted to smoke a joint. And he said to me, do you want to go to Siberia? Because it's very dangerous. I said, yeah, but I want to smoke. I know it's dangerous. Okay. Igor goes with you. <laughs> so Igor goes with me. After one hour drive, we came into a industrial surrounding with uh, fabrics. It was very dark. So we went to, into a fabric and then we came on a square, a middle square. And there were four Russian guys, you know, real Russian guys with long leather jackets standing there. JD, you want to smoke? Yes. Okay, light the joint. So there was light and it was a T-bone joint. Do you know what a T-bone joint is? It's cross, yeah. yeah. And he lighted on three tips and then he, I saw the three tips in the dark lightning like... I took one uh, one hill and two, and then I felt comfortable. And then they said, "JD, here does the police not come? Do you know where we are?" I said, "No, no, Igor, put a light." <laughs> and he put a light, and they were standing in a factory for explosives and rockets and machine guns. On the cases were all like uh, uh, explosives, highly dangerous. Don't light fire. And, it, and we were standing in the middle of that. Can you imagine in Moscow? And then I played. <laughs> and then I played a great set. <laughs> so you were one of the first house DJs in Moscow, right? Yeah, I was the first one. You were the first, first artist, yeah. yeah. Uh, they put it in a paper, newspaper, also. Damn. How was it seeing the crowd react to house music? It was. Music? It was enormous. They were so into the music and so into. I, I, th I thought it was like throwing down the wall, you know, like in Berlin. They were so emotional. And don't think the Russian people are cold, because they are the warmest people I met. Even in, in Hungary or in uh, Romania, they are so warm. It's real, true house music there. If you had to choose between playing live and producing, which would you choose and why? Playing live as a DJ, because the uh, for me the uh, chemic between my audience and my set is directly uh, feelable. In a studio, I'm always um, falling back on myself. And I can, I, can, I can imagine how they react on the song I'm making, but it's always a question, how do they react? And if I play my songs live or songs from another life, I can see immediately the direction of them and if they like it or not. For me, I'm a, I'm a people people human, so I like to be uh, around people. And my studio, I'm alone. It's very nice in my studio because the colors are good and the sound system is good. But if I have to choose to perform on stage like a DJ or to perform as a producer, I'm surely uh, choosing performing on stage. So next to the plastic dream, are there still you still have dreams, things you want to achieve, things you want to do? Um, the tension is less because you think, okay, I'm still playing and I'm, I'm earning well and I, I, I have some savings, but I want to try to do another radio hit for three minutes. And it will come, I think, but it's very difficult. It's a struggle and I like struggling. It's, it's going to be the house record or...? I don't know, maybe it's a kind of Gagnam style. Maybe it's <laughs> it has to be played by every radio station in the world because then you earn a lot of money. Because if you're played on, an, on a public radio station and if you made it by yourself, you earn 40 euros per, per play. But if you make a good uh, house track that's number one in the beatport or number one in, in, in track source, you, you earn 10 euros top. So the thing is, you have to make a radio hit, then the money's coming. What's the favorite festival and the favorite club that you've played at in your life? The favorite festival for me is undoubtedly uh, in Belgium, Cirque Magique. That's an uh, open air festival with a lot of nice people and a lot of circus artists. And the people who are coming, they are very into the music. And Cirque Magique is one of the organizations that don't uh, uh, contract EDM. It's all about deep house melodic tech. 
en uh, techno, but not the speed techno, the hard techno, the, the, the good techno from Joseph Capriat or so, or Sven Vat. And you asked for the club. Uh, my favorite club is in Belgium also, so you can imagine in Charlottetown in Ghent. It's a very intimate, intimate club. It's like a like a bar, but behind there are two areas. And for me, that it's the people are super, and I can do what I want, and I do it for three, four hours. And if even if I stop at five o'clock, it's still packed with people, and I have to go on to six. For me, that are is very important for me. Charlatan in Belgium, and Cirque Magique, and the most. Uh, uh, emotional uh, gig I had on a big cruise ship. It was called the Ark. There, oh, were, yeah. there were a lot of DJs over there, a lot of famous DJs, Eric Morelia, everybody, Solomon was playing there. And I played there, and you can't imagine, it's a, it's a ship about 300 meters, and they have their own uh, shopping mall in it. And for me, at that time, for me, that was the best thing ever happened in my life. Seeing uh, the famous DJs on the upper deck with the swim, uh, with the swimming pool very big, and everybody was happy dancing. And when I was sitting in my cabin, I had a view on the sea with a balcony. And if you are smoking, then joint, and you're sitting on your balcony chair, and you see the sea, and you hear the music, you can eat all night, all day, man. That's the dream. That's the dream. That's the plastic. Yeah, dream. that's the plastic. Dream. <laughs> Uh, as we're coming to the end of this so far amazing interview, I want to ask you a, uh, a question that's very difficult. I don't know if you prepared it, even if you thought about it, but your all-time favorite house track. Yeah, I can I can't give you another answer than it's Plastic Dreams, <laughs> and I tell you why because it changed my life. At the moment, I had very uh, I had it very tough. I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about other worlds. I traveled a lot, uh, I've been cheated, I've been robbed, I've been famous, I signed autographs on bodies, uh, people are playing my record on a funeral, on a wedding, on a wedding uh, proposal, and I had a lot of stories about my track, so for me, undoubtedly, Plastic Dreams is my DNA, my, my, my spine in my back. And do you still listen to it sometimes? Of course, yeah. of course. It's, it's funny because if I play, don't play the song for several months and then I see the audience and they think, okay, now I'm going to play it because they know I don't play it at my uh, gigs. They don't ask it, JD, can you play uh, Plastic Divas? They don't know, I don't play it. But sometimes I feel it and I play it and I see the, uh, the reaction of the audience and they think, like, wow, this is it. This is the shizzle. <laughs> well, you're about to go play live here at the Recycle Lounge in Amsterdam. Yeah. Thank you so much for doing this, finding the time before you're set to talk with us. We really appreciate it. We're going to follow everything that you're still going to do because there's a lot of energy inside of you. I can, yeah. I can feel that. Thanks so much for doing Thank this. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, Milan. Thank you. Thank and you. success and good luck with your shows, okay? Thanks. Bye-bye. Oh.